Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking with Bungie. You may or may not know that the YouTube channel, Death by Bungie, is now publishing a series of videos, Breaking Limbs, all about breaking limbs on crossbows and what causes it and what we can do about it. That's right, I'm Rich Wilson and I'm looking into that topic for the sake of Bungie Jr. to try and help that crossbow and crossbows around the world benefit from healthier limbs. <laughs> it's a pretty tall order. But I interviewed a whole bunch of people and put together a series of really good videos. I hope you're checking those out. And maybe, just maybe, you watched that video and heard that I had a podcast and that's why you're here. If that's the case, I hope that you will check out previous episodes of Talking with Bungie, and I hope that you'll stick around for future ones as well. This episode of Talking with Bungie is my interview with Mark Beck. Now, Mark originally contacted me way back in the day, last year when I was doing videos about the Faradine Axe 440. That was a really neat crossbow that I did a video about when I was looking for a successor to Bungie my crossbow of 12 seasons now that has its original limbs, by the way. Mark contacted me because he actually was instrumental in the creation, the design of that crossbow. So we talked about uh, broken limbs, arrows and penetration, and even cranks. Yeah, we talk about cranks for your crossbow. Please join me in listening to this interview with Mark Beck. I was a crossbow designer for, well, for the last 15 years. Horton, I've worked for Barnett. Um, I've worked for Faradine most recently. Uh, had some input on the uh, the Axe 405, and then I was the one that worked on the 440 to uh, release that. I've done the Horton Vision, which was the very first crossbow I did on my own. And there's various models at Barnett that I worked on. Um, with a compound bow, you know, I've worked, I've shot for five years for Bowtech, a year for PSE and Hoyt, and been with Darton currently since 2011. Quite a bit of engineering, uh, you know, when I wasn't working with crossbows, I was working with broadheads and, you know, just about anything else. Tree stands had, had some time with Muddy Outdoors when they, when they bought Harvest Time. I, I helped get the Bloodsport Arrow line up and going. Okay. Um, you know, there again, shot multiple different types of arrows uh, before working with Bloodsport and Muddy Outdoors. Um, I had shot Rick McKinney's arrows um, for Carbon Tech. So, yeah, that's really the last 20-some years in a nutshell. But the last 14 has been primarily dedicated to crossbows. Now, can you tell me what, when you're dedicated to crossbows, what positions have you filled, what, what jobs, what, like what's your title? Anywhere from design engineer to designer. There you go. Okay. Dealt a lot with customer service as well. Sometimes I would help train the, the customer service people. Um, have little classes for my Barnett. You know, explain what, where, when, and why. You know, for instance, dry fire. A lot of people think it's okay to dry fire a crossbow because they do it with their Glock or whatever they have. Um, they don't realize that you know all that energy goes somewhere. If it isn't pushing an arrow, then you know, it goes back into the, the actual system, um, which is the limbs, cables, cams, axles, and so on. Right. 
Right. That's what I'm finding out. There's a lot of our issues with regard to limbs and stuff. And you had mentioned that you had some background with uh, how limbs are made and all that. Is there any consistency from one manufacturer to another? Yeah, uh, there is. And and they're really more consistent on your lower end bows, um, the ones you'll see in the big box stores. They start to play around with limbs, you know, as they get into the higher end. Um, you know, I know we did some we did some things at uh, Faradine. You know, the axe crossbow limbs were actually machined right there in Superior. Um, you know, we'd get the blanks in and we'd machine the profiles. And, you know, we'd send them out for powder coat, bring them back in and do the decorating, and then we'd put them on the riser right there in Superior. Wow. Okay. Not, not, not all companies do that. Um, yeah, when I started back late 2007 at Horton, we would just get plates of carbon material. And we would machine the belly um, or the, the compression side, you know, the inside of your limb. And uh, then we would cut four limbs out of that plate, and we'd put it on a, a prototype bow in the lab, pull it, find out what weight it was at, and then from there know to either take more material off the limb to bring the weight down or add material to the limb to bring it up. Because the first variable in limb manufacturing is actually the blank, the limb material. Um so it all depends on, you know, are there voids? You know, how much of one composite is there compared to another? You know, what's the ratio? Did did it just work out to be a weaker limb that, that batch? You know, or for that run of maybe ten or fifteen limbs, you know. Mm-hmm. So what was what was really cool, you know, when we had more models and I'm talking more along the lines of, of the Barnets and the Hortons, um, back in the day. When I'm talking, when I say back in the day, I mean prior to 2012. Right, day. right. Before we lost, you know, Horton and yeah, yep. But and and I would assume Ten Point, although I don't really want to speak for for them. Um, there was a lot of manufacturing similarities back then with Horton and Ten Point, um, even though they were different companies. But what they would do is they would cut a bunch of these plates. And then they would separate their limbs out and they would take the same basic design and the weaker limb would be your model 320 and your stronger limb would be your model 360, you know, gotcha. just because it was the heavier limb. And that's, that's basic archery and it's in a nutshell, um, you know, there's only a couple ways to get speed. One of them is more poundage another is longer stroke. And, and if you really want to push it, you lighten up the projectile. So um, but but getting back to you know the larger companies, they had one particular limb design they and profile that they they trusted, time proven. Um, they would just cut those limb blanks out, weigh them, and put them in the right box to be used on a 320 bow or a 360 bow, whatever the case may be. Now, what are those blanks made out of? Is that just a big sheet of this composite material? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, some, um, some of the blanks. You know, um, we used to get plates at Horton, and, uh, you know, we would basically get blanks or strips, you know, uh, with Barnett or, or Paradigm, wherever, and then they would, you know, we knew where we wanted to cut the belly, which there's a lot of calculations and stuff to get involved in doing some of that. Um, you know, it's like bending anything. You know, you have, a, you have to figure out where you want it to bend, how you want it to bend, and project the poundage as best you can. Right. Here, and, you know, if somebody... If somebody would hand you a stave to make your own self-play, right, an old recurve or no longbow, whatever, mm-hmm. 
yeah, you may be looking at a piece of hickory or you may be looking at a piece of oak or whatever the case may be, Osage wine. And you can cut them all the same way. They're going to react different, you know. And some of them may have knots or voids that you don't see. And you won't, you don't find that out for the first time you pull it, which, which at times does happen. Um, you know, to say that making the limb blanks is an exact science. No, not, not really. However, they do laminate some of the fancy things that are going on with laminated limbs, um, that, that help stiffen surfaces and so on is, is really interesting. And, you know, if you're into that type of science and so on, it's pretty cool. How many of them use laminates and how many of them use blanks like we're talking? Uh, well, that's hard to tell right now because once they're powder coated and decorated, you don't know until you sand them down. And, and you know, some companies, some of the bigger companies um, may, you know, may use both. They may use heavy laminated limbs or, or a laminated limb for the higher end those and then just use the regular blanks or raw material for maybe their big box store bows. You know, um, it's not way back, back when we first started using laminated lens, you could almost say, well, yeah, you know, Gotex doing this or 10 points doing that or whatever. Now you don't know until you actually tear the limb down. Right. Or if you break one and you have to see how it broke or. Yeah, exactly. So am I correct then that when we see these breakages popping up on Facebook or wherever, that it, the the nature of the breakage, because the limb designs are going to differ from one company to another, the, the nature of the breakage is going to be a little bit different. Sometimes you have separations of the lamination. Sometimes you have a, a, a limb that breaks in half or what have you. If And is there a cause or a likely contributing factor or some kind of science behind it that is consistent across all those types of limbs? Or is it... Uh, you know, one type of limb is going to have one set of issues and one different type of limb is going to have a different set of issues. You know, when a company, and, and pick one, I don't, I don't care, just any name, when they go to market with a bow, they're confident in that limb. Um, <clears throat> they've done the research, they've done the testing and so on. They know what that limb's going to do. Mm-hmm. There are things that we cannot control on the manufacturing side. And unfortunately, when somebody goes on the internet and starts slamming somebody because a limb broke, you know, they think it's the company's fault. Well, what happened to that limb? You know, was there a void in the limb? Well, if there was a void in the limb, then you're going to see a a true break, a true failure. Some people consider, you know, what we call picking, where uh, maybe a little splinter comes off the corner. Um, They consider that a broken limb. In all reality, the limb didn't break. What happened was you had a splinter pick off of the corner. Um, it may have been where a fiber had been too close to that particular band in the belly. And when the limb got cocked, it would compress, but because it was so short and close to the edge, it would just flake out, you know, um, it's just where the fibers fell in relationship to the shape of the limb. Exactly. And there's no way to x-ray for it. There's no way to predict it. Um, it just, it just happened. Um, sometimes maybe the coating was thin, you know, those are things that usually get found out during the prototyping stage. Okay. Maybe we'll have to go to a five mil thickness on the powder coat, you know, to help protect the limb and and give it a harder shell, Mm -hmm. whatever that, that may end up being, (laughs) you know, it, I've, I've had a lot of customer service calls where, 
you know, example at Horton, right after we released the Vision uh, 175, I had a gentleman call and said, I blew my bow up. I'm like, how in the heck did you blow that bow up? I mean, those limbs are way stronger than needed to be in that bow. And I got with the customer service agent and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. He's in Ohio. We were in Ohio. I said, send it to my attention overnight. We'll send you the the packing information, the shipping information. I'll have my guys out on the floor, sight one in, get it sighted in dead on at 20 yards for you. And these two bows will pass in the mail. I want to see that. And she got back on the customer and I said, but I want everything. I want cocking sled. I want the arrows. I want, I want the whole package. We're sending a whole package. I want the whole package back. And she goes, okay. She gets the gentleman on the phone and says, okay, here's what he wants. He wants this, he wants that, you know, and, and uh, he was eating the arrows, even even the cocking sled, the whole nine years. He goes, arrows? What's he want the arrows for? She goes, I don't know. Maybe there was an issue with the knock. We have no idea why this blew up for you. Yeah. We want to find out. You know, so we want to look at all the components. And he goes, well, I didn't even use the arrows. <laughs> True story. And that was also, now that was, 2008, um, late 2008, and you know that was before all the anti-dry fires or the dry fire interrupters, right? Were were standard, you know, because that movement really didn't happen until 10, I want to say, when when everybody started pushing for anti-dry fire triggers or dry fire interrupter mechanisms, right? So, but yeah, that happens. Uh, Customer calls, you know, well, yeah, what are, what are these steel thingies for? They didn't put the tips in the end of the arrow. They, they shot the arrow without a steel point in it. Oh, yeah. Some of the high-performance bows, especially the ones that are shooting arrows or bolts, as some call them, uh, around 380 grains, you know, they may be pushing the limit. So if you take 100 grains off of that arrow or that bolt, that's significant. Now you're in a in a dry fire situation, you do not have enough resistance to protect the system. Right. 350 might be okay, but 250 is not going to do it. Not at all. No, no. So, um, those things happen. Um, you know, back in the day when people would not check the, uh, the arrow retainer, you know, the little lever that would come off the underneath the scope mount and hold the arrow in place. Mm -hmm. You know, now we have brushes on some models and, and, you know, some still use the arrow retainer. Um, if they didn't know how to check that, it would not hold the arrow properly in the location against the, against the string. So if you're sitting in your tree stand, or maybe you're out in the backyard just practicing, you load the arrow, waving it around, and it ever so slightly moves forward. It does not, you know, fall out of the crossbow. Right. If you have a gap, what happens at that point in time is, you know, the string when fired, slaps the arrow, doesn't push it. So when it slaps the arrow, now it could cause the arrow tip to lift or move left or right. You still do not have that full resistance. And and I've seen, in fact, where people would call and say, hey, I had an arrow in it, and it, it dry fired. It blew up. Strings, cables, you know, whatever. I'm like, okay. Well, then when we get the bow back and we, we – put an arrow on the flight track and shake the bow, and we see that arrow move forward. We know that it did not have enough spring retention to hold it in place the way it should have been. Right, right. And now there's, you know, you see more and more uh, 
companies going with capture knots or true knots that clip to the string mm-hmm. to, to prevent that issue altogether. You do see that, yeah. Knocks are a big thing. Are Have you been involved in the design of knocks? Yes. Now, is, is that becoming, as you get to these new crossbows, you know, getting high 400s, even 500 feet per second, I know like 10 point, for example, you hear about problems with knocks and they each, uh, they've had like three different designs of knocks trying to really find the right knock for their arrow. Is that something that you think is going to be, are we going to continue to see new types of knocks coming out, designs? Off, right off the top of my head, I would have to say yes. Um, <clears throat> and that's mainly because you're going to start pushing the limits with the system. Something's going to take that hit, and usually it's the knock. Um, you know, back in the day when we went with carbon arrows and wall, th- wall thicknesses weren't as thick and arrows were lighter, um, sometimes when you put 100 grains on the front or, you know, the the uh, brass inserts and so on, you had so much resistance sitting there that as soon as you touched that trigger, that string would basically try and shove the knock up into the arrow. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, that's always bad because if you fracture a carbon arrow now you have all those very sharp shards that cut the string in half oh yeah and that's another thing that we would see um early on when the string was cut in the middle it was an issue with knock or maybe they you know goodness maybe they hit a knock maybe it was a uh, aluminum knock or a metal knock of some sort and they hit it previously didn't check their arrow put it in the bow it has a dent or a shard sticking out that could cut the string when it's shot or it had actually cracked the arrow in which case the, the knock would then you know get shoved up into the arrow and again cut the string yeah and now your customer all they know is my, it, my bow blew up yep yep and and shame you know with crossbows we've lost a lot of archery and we've lost a lot of training mm-hmm. um you know when i started shooting competition or even shooting a bow you know i shot a bow ever since i was 10 years old when i would go to local shoots or something there was always somebody there willing now there's always there's always like a local pro at your at your archery shop you know um when i went and started shooting competitions on league night you know, there's always that guy in the corner, that 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 older fellow that seems to know everything, mm-hmm. and willing to help. Unfortunately, with crossbows, we don't have that community. There are some, but they're not readily available. They're not the guy at the shop. You know, there there are people. You know, maybe watching your your broadcast or something like that. But even then, it's not the same as being there. That's true. Yeah. Yep. You know, I mean, it, we don't have classes that talk about how to set your arrow retainer, mm-hmm. you know, so that you don't have that arrow move forward when you're sitting in your tree stand and, you know, it's rocking back and forth or whatever. Um, we don't have people explaining why you don't dry fire a bow. Now, older older archers that were compound shooters or recurve shooters, you know, when they get to a point where they still want to hunt, but they can't pull the bow back anymore, or they can't pull the poundage back that they feel comfortable with you know, taking the white tail with whatever. They understood it because they were archers to begin with. So for them to move into the crossbow realm, they understood, okay, I need to make sure this arrow is this way or I have to make sure the the index vein is down in the actual flight track. Mm-hmm. Well, and that the 
maybe it was a moon knock. That moon knock was actually going to capture the string and not be turned out of phase to where, you know, now you semi dry fire the bow again. So all that made sense to those older archers. Um, now people can go to a, a box store or even online and purchase a bow and they get it and they get instructions on how to put it together, how to load it and how to shoot it, but they don't get the in-depth knowledge that you get, you know, with people following your your broadcast or, or finding that old guy down at the range. Right, or even somebody that's got the familiarity with that model uh, that can tell you, you know, because uh, I I know moving from one model to another, it's it can be a whole different world, you know. Really, yeah. Well, just the differences in you know recurve to compound and so on. I mean, you know, some people love the recurve for their simplicity. Others love the compounds for you know the inherent more speed with a heavier arrow. You know, mm-hmm. um, and they're they're intimidated. Some people are intimidated looking at a looking at a compound, and that's true of all archery, not just crossbows. Yeah, yeah. So, can you tell me? Let's when we talk about the limbs breaking again. The the percentage in the industry. I don't know if you can put a percentage on. I'm sure it's going to vary from year to year. It's going to vary from manufacturer to manufacturer. But what kind of percentage of of limb issues are we really dealing with? Wow! Out of all the bows sold. Yeah, I mean that's incredible. Um, Man, I don't know if you can put a number on it. I I really don't. Because you'd almost have to separate out. Okay, was it truly a? Was it just a poor limb to begin with, or was had something happened? If you're going to go that route, then you really have to break down cause. You know. Right, right. User error and the various things that can happen with what you know out in the field. But when you're talking about a company, you know, that sells ten thousand of one model in a year, okay, mm-hmm. and they get. 20 limbs of break, you know, right. 20 people complaining about it. Yeah, it sucks. That's 20 bows. You, you know, you and I as, as regular users don't want to see one, you know, but unfortunately things happen and it's 20 bows, but you never hear about the other 9,000 some odd bows that didn't happen. Right. And then you put that across more models from that manufacturer. And then across the different manufacturers, it is so minor, you know, for it to be a true manufactured limb issue. Um, and usually, you know, when was the last time you heard about a, a company recalling something because of limbs? Not one. Right. So so that should tell you right there. And trust me, when I know when somebody picks up the phone and they've got a bow on the other end that blew up there are all hands on deck there's somebody from customer service or somebody from production or somebody from engineering you know there's somebody from quality everybody knows that phone call and i don't care who who the company is you can bet that that is a priority but when they break it down if it truly was you know a manufacturing issue they would they would definitely have recalls yeah they don't want they don't want these bows out there with all this Potential energy, stored energy, just sitting there, you know, waiting to hurt somebody. Um, you know, so that in and of itself should tell you that that number is even smaller than what we would imagine it. Yeah, that's something that never comes up. But I actually had done some research on the recalls, and you know, there it seems like across the board, manufacturers over the years have had issues with safeties and triggers, right? That kind of that's that's an issue that need that needed attention on various models and but I couldn't find anything on a limb. Yeah, and I I don't remember of any either. Uh, you know, for 
limbs. And, you know, limbs are what scares people the most, believe it or not. Oddly enough, and I, uh, when a limb breaks, though, yeah. I don't think you get injuries from that. Or it doesn't seem to be a situation. The one that we've had within our household didn't, it was scary, but it wasn't something where I could picture somebody be, really being injured with yeah, it. Yeah. Um, I've heard of, you know, a person being injured, took a shot at a deer. He was stalking the deer, which, you know, some manufacturers still to this day don't recommend doing. Um, walking around the woods with a, with a loaded cocked crossbow. But apparently when he pulled up on the, on the animal, he was too close to a tree and the limb smacked the, yeah, smacked the tree, unfortunately. Um, you know, and then that shocked him and, and also with the limb breaking, I guess he was slapped with the string and cable. I'm not, I don't remember offhand, but, um, you know, those things happen. Um, and the limb broke obviously because it hit the tree and the cams and, yeah. Then you've got parts moving around. And I, I think that I've read about issues with people getting hurt with cocking devices when a cable on that breaks. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a, you can see your eyes being uh, subjected to, you know, in the risk in the danger zone there with things like that. But that, that in itself talks to people not knowing how to maintain all of their equipment. You know, for instance, a cocking rope doesn't just break one day. It, it goes and it frays. Yeah. And 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 it could be something maybe misused. You know, maybe maybe they didn't have it. You know, on some models, the pulleys, the rope actually goes through a stationary point in the stock. Um, and if it rubs back and forth, like you know, for a, a hand cocker, if one person's arm is stronger than the other. Sometimes you'll get that rope to slip through before they actually start to pull back, and it solves itself on the stock. Well, the stock is a composite item and it's going to wear that cocking rope out. Well, if they don't catch the fraying or they don't think it's anything to be worried about, you know, they're going to end up with a, with a broken cocking rope at some point. And a partially dry fired crossbow. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, it doesn't happen when it's cocked and it doesn't happen when it's at brace. It happens halfway through the power switch, yep. you know, before they get to the let off. So, um, you know, I, and I've seen crossbows come into different shops that I worked at or may have stopped in and helped out from time to time. People haven't been trained on how to wax their strings. Yeah. You know? And and just simple maintenance. Um, yes, it's in the manual. You know, waxing the string and, and, and lubing flight tracks or decks or whatever you want to call them, flight rails. You know, they've been in multiple manuals multiple times. Uh, and they they still end up in somebody's hands that doesn't wax their strings periodically or you know whenever they should and so the strings literally sit there and dry rot. <sighs> yeah, you had mentioned like I wrote down the energy has to go somewhere. Can you talk a little bit more about that when we talk about dry fires and we talk about crossbows and in particular even when you're firing a crossbow that's got the proper arrow weight in it, there's leftover energy obviously. And that you usually hear in vibration, um, you know, uh, let's see, what's the best way to try and explain this? You know, just recently I, I saw, I think it was during baseball season where they had a lot of pitchers, you know, warming up with towels. They were, they'd hold on to a, a hand towel and they would throw it because their body needs that resistance. 
Because um, if not, then all of a sudden shoulders start to separate, joints start to separate. With a bow, similar, except the energy is actually directed back into the system. So when the limbs move forward, the cables pull on the cams, the cams are uh, taking up the string. And at some point in time, that comes to a dead stop. Okay. Yep. Now there's still forward momentum in that in that system, and if there's not the resistance of the arrow, that forward momentum is amplified or is more than it would have been. And at some point in time, you may see an axle bend. You might see some damage to the cam because. That energy had to go somewhere, and it just picked on the weakest link. Now, usually, designers will try to make your strings and cables that weak link, so that if you blow a bow up, chances of the only damage being done is a broken string or cable. Oh, okay, to save the save the rest of the components. To save the rest of the components, because it's taking a hard hit. Yeah. You know, hard, hard. The, the, it, it has nowhere else to go except back into the system, and of course... When you have that, you get more vibration, you know, and of course, you know, vibration can be a bad thing as well. Um, if it if it allows for, let's say, the cables, um, trying to think, let's say you have a conventional riser, not a reverse draw, just, just to keep things simple. You have a conventional riser with cables that cross underneath the flight track, you know, um, same design we've seen for 50, 60 years. If that boat dry fires, those cables that are being pulled down and in sometimes will overpower the string because there's two cables. That's when you start to bend axles because now the cam won't rotate perfectly around a vertical axis. Now the axis is, is at an angle. That makes sense? Kind of, yeah. I understand what you're saying because the cables are kind of fighting the string. Well, the cables are fighting the string. Only one string. Yep. Horizontal. The two cables are now at an angle pulling down and in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, you know, now you could have bent axles. Sometimes you might even see a cam roll, the edge of a cam roll over as the string tries to come out of the groove or the cable tries to come out of yep. the groove. Yep. And once one of those things goes, now let's say the string goes, now the cable is, is trying to hold back the force of the limb. It's only has two components instead of three holding back that force. It's off center. And now that pressure goes back into the limb and causes one of the limbs, usually the one under the most pressure, to fatigue and break. Or you'll see a crack, you know, through the center of the limb. Okay. Whereas if you have the resistance, needed the recommended arrow weight or heavier um you know that's that's not going to happen you're not going to see those components uh fracture or be uh, compromised and that's the enough of the energy is going into that projectile into the arrow to so that you don't have all that leftover energy going into the limbs correct now when we talk about heavier arrows, 350 is a real common arrow weight. What's that based on? Is that a good a good thing, a bad thing, an adequate thing? What are your thoughts on that? Well, personally, I like heavier. Um, I always did, especially for hunting. Um, I got into shooting competition mainly just because of, you know, I wanted to be a more accurate hunter. Um, I never set out to win, you know, two world championships with a crossbow, but just because of situations I was in, wow. it helped. And one of the things, one of the things that helped me do that was a heavier arrow because it stabilized better. Mm-hmm. 
Now, when you say 350 grains, I'm going to ask you, what's the draw weight? Because 350 grains, to me, is fine when you're dealing with, you know, 160, 175-pound boats. Gotcha. Um, now, you start adding more and more poundage to those boats to get more speed. Now, you start, you start talking about 380s, and those are your minimums, right? I like... When people when people ask me what boat do I buy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I've shot all of them. Um, I basically tell them you buy the fastest boat you can afford, and then if you really want to, you know, not have to trail deer, then then add weight to your arrow. You know, you either shoot a heavier arrow or a heavier broadhead if it'll fly for you, um, so that you have more of the kinetic energy. Because if you're if you're buy a bow that shoots 400 feet per second with a 380 grain arrow and you can purchase a 425 grain arrow yeah you're not going to shoot 400 feet per second but good god man that's a 400 some grain arrow still flying 375 feet per second right you know with mechanical broadheads which i'm i'm a fan of especially for for crossbows Mm -hmm. um yeah use that kinetic energy Open that broadhead up. Shoot a bigger opening broadhead. You know, if they if they make a two two and a quarter inch expandable broadhead, you know, that's going to take a lot of energy to open up in a deer, especially if it's cam over design. Um, you know, the older Spitfire designs and so on. Yep. That's going to eat up a lot of energy. Well, why not? Why not? Why not shoot a heavier arrow and put a two inch hole in that deer? Yeah. Yeah. You're only going to do the deer a favor by by having it you know, expire quicker anyway. Right. And you're going to do yourself a favor because if it's in the right spot, you're not going to have the track job. Um, you know, some of the arrows, uh, my wife shoots a uh, crossbow that was standard with a 20 inch arrow or bolt, whatever you want to call them. Um, <laughs> I, I had her shoot 22s for the weight. Also a little longer arrow I felt out of her bow was gave us a little bit better spine reaction. So she was only, you know, her bow was only a 320 foot per second bow. Okay, well, it brought it down in the 280 feet per second. But, man, is she accurate. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we'd be practicing in the backyard. And one day I looked at her and I said, okay, we had a we had a block target with the five dots on it. I said, shoot, shoot the upper left dot. She pulls up and she puts it right in there. And I was like, oh, that's good. I said, you see that hole in the, in the center? dot right in the middle of the center dot she goes yeah said stick an arrow in that hole and she did (laughs) you know 25 yards yep you know because it was slower which which helped her out um you know the faster the arrow the more critical the shot you know the better your stance has to be the breathing the whole nine yards but it also stabilized that arrow a little bit better and it quieted the bow down that's another thing that heavy arrows do. Uh, everybody is worried about, you know, noise, crossbow noise or any bow noise. Um, now trying to break speeds and, and get three digits on a chronograph that you want to see or whatever the case may be. Now all of a sudden they start complaining about noise. Well, shoot a heavier arrow. When you say heavier arrow, what, what how much weight are you talking? Well, you know, I like shooting around 400 grains yep. for crossbows. You know, um, for my compound bows, I like you know, shooting or hunting with, you know, I've got some arrows that I, that I hold hunt with that are, you know, close to 500 grains for compound. Um, you know, but for crossbows, especially if the, if the bow's rated for, you know, an arrow that's 380 or 
so on. That 20, 25 grains is, is quite helpful, especially if it's in the arrow shaft itself, not just on the end. Yeah, yep, yep. So... When these guys are talking 700 grains and 800 grain arrows, is that a waste, do you think? Or and, and specifically, I guess a good question, I think, is for our conversation is how does that affect the crossbow? Is there a, a benefit to limbs to having these heavier arrows? Is there uh, too much? No, let's, let's go back to that limb. You know, when we talk about semi-dry fires or dry fires, right? and all the damage that all that extra energy going back into the system causes. When you shoot a heavier arrow, now there's less energy going back into that system. Mm-hmm. So it is better for the bow. Um, I had a chance to test some arrows for Bernard Horton uh, back in, let's say, 2008. He filled arrows with sand. Yeah, yeah. And, and he goes, here, try this arrow. And he had letter A on one vein, and then the other arrow had letter B. He goes, try this one. And I shot it, and that was the first time I actually actually felt recoil in a crossbow, um, especially a especially a uh, conventional crossbow. Right. Uh, right. The, the kick that you're familiar with, with a rifle almost, not the forward recoil of the, of the string, you right. know, stopping. But, yeah, I, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, and I was like, good Lord. <laughs> and I knew, the, I knew the arrow was head when he handed it to, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can feel the difference. Yeah, you can yeah. definitely feel the difference. Yep. And, and we were in the lab, and I put that arrow on there and shot it through the chronograph, and I think it only ran up like 250 feet per second. <laughs> and and it was an older uh, whitetail model, I think, crossbow that I was shooting. Maybe it was a team real tree at the time. But um, I looked at Bernard, and he just started laughing. And I go, what the heck was that? Uh, you know, in his in his English accent, he told me he goes, well, uh, well, mate, he said that was 750 grains, and I was like, holy jumping! <laughs> like a ton of bricks at the other end. I mean, you could seriously hear the difference entering target. And uh, then he goes, here, try this one, and I shot that one. And that was even noticeably more than the other, one. and that one was almost a thousand grain arrow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was quiet. The bow was extremely quiet because, again, all that energy that was in the system got released and started pushing the heavier object. Right. You know. Right. Now you're you had a hand in designing the Axe 440. Am I right on that? Yeah. My my nephew bought one of those, and I can tell you he's very impressed. And I'm impressed. I haven't seen it in person yet, but I'm impressed with what he's telling me. <laughs> the now that has a different style arrow, the micro diameter and sort of a an outsert, I think, built in on the on the front end. Is the and can you tell me about that? Well, that has um, the Carbon Express system, and it's I'm trying to remember the actual name they gave it, but it's a combination of an insert and an outsert. So there's actually an insert that goes inside the arrow, and then there's an outsert that goes over top of both and fastens to the end of the arrow. So it fully encapsulates the end of that that shaft okay yep and the reason that is that is done is to protect the end of that carbon because you don't want an insert splitting it and you don't want the outsert to crush it the arrow initially when when the 405 project began um everybody was excited about micro diameter arrows because of better penetration yeah so we designed the 405 around that that need that want and then when it came time for the 440, then 
I basically just took what we had and made it a little longer. His problem that he's got with this thing is that he can't get a target. All of his older targets that he had for the, for the previous crossbow that he was using aren't yeah. enough to stop it. He's actually doubling up targets now, and they're going through that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, um, it, I said this tongue-in-cheek, and nobody else in the room thought it was funny. They said, my God, we're having trouble. Our sales guys are having trouble stopping this thing. And, I, and we looked at, you know, the, the salesman, and, and I kind of was just trying to be funny. I wasn't trying to be ignorant. But I said, well, hell, you just told me you wanted it to go fast. You didn't tell me you wanted me to stop it. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, are we, what are we talking about here? You want something that's going to penetrate anything in North America. By God, you got it. You know, what's going to stop it? The ground on the other side. That's what's going to stop. Um, but no, we we literally started that project and did not put enough thought into practice. How are we going to, you know, how are we going to practice with this? Now, I know the, the hurricane target does an extremely good job. Um, and I'm not sure if Block or Carbon Express or anyone has has worked on another target um, or finished their design at this point. You know, that's I was doing the same thing. I was I was doubling up targets, and heck, when I was when I was prototyping the 440 after you know the similar issues were coming out with the 405. Okay, mm-hmm. we we wanted to get the 440 out there and get it rolling. I was literally shooting through a black block target sitting at 40 yards and having a block six by six stop it at 42 yards. <laughs> I, because, and, and I had it at distance because that theory did not work at 20 yards. Wow. The block target was ripping off the veins and I was still burying it so deep into the six by six. I was almost thinking about hooking up my tractor to it to pull it out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was, that was what was going on. I know the guys from Hurricane and, uh, and Block were also looking at it, trying to stop them. I have a bulldog. I think that'll stop his, uh, you know, the arrows and stuff. He's going to try that out when we're done with the rifle season here. So uh, we're done with that now, actually. But he's going to uh, borrow that when he gets fired up with the crossbow again. So tell me about that design. Reverse draw in and of itself. Uh, what it what reverse draw gets you is a longer power stroke in a similar overall length. Does that make sense? Yes. Yep. Um, because with the riser um, behind, you know, you don't have the riser or the brace height forward of the bow now, and then you add on a foot stroke. Usually with the reverse draws, you know, at the end of the stroke is your foot stroke. So you lose all that, that brace height distance. That, again, goes into your draw stroke longer draw stroke, faster speeds. Also, the best part, and, and uh, you know, I won my first world back in 2008 with the uh, Horton uh, Recon. The balance point is between the supporting shoulder and the supporting hand. So if you're a right-handed shooter, that means the balance point's between your left hand and your shoulder. That in and of itself aids to the stability of the shot because you don't have that cantilevered weight like a conventional riser out at the end. So you don't have it trying to tip forward on you. Okay. So it's going to improve your accuracy too. Absolutely. Yeah. Less shooter fatigue, feel better about it all I know. Is there anything special about the rail on the on the axe? Is it a railist design or do you have a shooting rail? It's railist. Yep. Yep. It's railist. Um, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, you have a capture knock, you know, 
So they clip to the string. Ah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then it has a roller rest out at the front. Um, you know, you don't have as much, you don't have the string wear because back in the day when you had a flight track, you know, the string would ride the rail. That's why we were always saying to, to lube the rail. Right. By rail loop, you know, so that you didn't wear the string out. Um constantly sliding up and down the, the rail. Also, one of the tricks uh, to help quiet the crossbows down was the more string tension you had on the rail, the less harm, uh, the less twang you'd get out of the string at the shot because it was dragging on the rail. So the rail acted like a dampener. Oh, I hear you. Yeah. yeah. It also helped keep uh, the string in position behind the the, uh, the arrow when you had a flat base knock or you had a moon knock or um, some other style knock that wasn't truly capturing the string. Right. So. So are these? Do these have rollers now? There's there's two rollers on the front. Yeah. On the, okay. on the arrow. Yeah. Yep. Simple simple roller design. Seen in archery multiple times. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So. Uh, let's see what else. Integrated crank. Um, the trigger mechanism actually goes forward, grabs the string, and pulls it back so that the string is always engaged with the trigger. He told me he really likes that design. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Pretty popular. Pretty popular. You know, it's it's less components, right? You don't have a cocking rope or a different sled. So, and and there's other companies also. That, that are starting to use that as well um, and have. So. When did cranks, like when I started in 2010 or so, cranks were like an add-on you could buy, but for the most part weren't used. They weren't something that came with crossbows. Where did you see that pop up in the industry? And Because we've gotten to the point now where it seems like cranks are part of every crossbow. Yeah, I can't give you the year, but 10 point was the first one I saw. Oh, okay. I want to say it was around 2010 with their AccuDraw system. Okay. Um, you know, they had a sled that would that you release the you release the spool at the back or the crank. You release that, you'd stretch it up over, it would capture the string. Um, I think they even stored the handle in the bottom of the stock, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And uh, you know, you crank it back, and then you'd hit a release. You'd You'd pull the sled forward, push the sled forward, bring it back up over the scope, and wind it back up, and it would just, you know, dock right there behind the scope. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, And that was going back, you think, somewhere around 2010 even. I, I think so. Wow. I, don't, don't hold me to that. Um, I know I was working for Barnett at the time. Uh, Horton, you know, they had a, a saddle that just fit over the end of the, of the stock, and then the crank was you know, mounted to the saddle, and then when you were done, you just pulled it off and put it in your backpack or whatever you were using, carried around. But I think 10 Point was the first one, because I remember seeing it for the first time, and as a as a crossbow designer, I was like, that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's something that they thought of that's pretty pretty handy, yeah. Yep, yep you got to give the devil's due. And then, and then, you know, as a competitor of theirs, it was like, damn it. <laughs> you know. back then going back to 2010 or so or when you were working for barnett did was there were you thinking that we'd reach 500 feet per second on certain crossbows at some point did that seem like something that was even doable it didn't seem doable but was it something that's in the future yeah yeah you know because you know as long as we have limbs projecting strings forward pushing arrows 
someone's going to come up with a better design somewhere. And and at some point in time, it's going to be the limb, you know, because we went from having, you know, at one point in time, we had, what, steel limbs back in the day? Mm-hmm. And then we come out with composite limbs, you know, and now the, I'm sure there's going to be another material somewhere that comes out that, that who knows is going to be lighter, is going to last longer, and is going to, you know, have spring rates higher than the composite limbs we see today. So, yeah, it's going to happen. When's it going to happen? I don't know. Yep. Um, you know, 500 feet per second is doable now. Uh, 600 feet, there's going to be a major, there's going to be a major change at some point for that to, to happen. It's it's definitely going to have to be a new material in the system somewhere. That's a that's a jump that's going to require a huge technological advancement that changes the industry. Oh, yeah. yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, and as long as the archery industry and, and crossbows. I, I still shoot my recurves every once in a while. Mm-hmm. You know, if it throws an arrow, I'm in. Um, but as long as the archery industry keeps to having one, at least one bending moment, a limb, um, there's always going to be a need for us to make that go better and faster. On that note, we talked about speed, fast arrows. You know me. We shoot rockets, not rainbows. Actually, I shoot a little bit of both, don't we now? Bungie Third likes to shoot the rockets, shooting close to 400 feet per second. But the OB, the original Bungie, still putting arrows down range anywhere from 250 up to 305 feet per second. So speed is relative, I guess. But on that wonderful note... I just want to say thank you to Mark Beck for joining me on Talking with Bungie. And I want to thank you, you friends of Bungie, for listening in. Until next time, all hail Bungie.